Do you remember uh, back when we were doing the Kevin and King podcast? Uh, you said by episode 17 we've nailed it. Yeah. Well, I loved that confidence so much that I wrote it down. Just like had it in the back of my mind. Obviously, like that podcast didn't work out, but I kept it in mind for this one. So when we started really focusing on what we consume, I kept thinking we should do something special for episode 17. So I planned it out and made sure that number 17 would be this episode. Then the night before we recorded the space race, I uh, looked up what I'd written down, and uh, turns out you said episode 13 was when we nailed it, but uh, fuck that, episode 17 it is. <laughs> what we consume. Ahoy ahoy, and welcome to What We Consume, a podcast about all the things we put into our minds and bodies. I'm your host, King Hagathor, and with me as always is... Hey, it's Kevin, and we're nailing this podcast thing. Yep. Our intro talks about how we put things into our minds and bodies, and we've talked about technology, innovation, history, and food, but we've only talked about food in episode one, really. So I think it's about time we got back to what we physically consume in our bodies. So let's talk about Bevs. Like beverages or Bevs? Is that Beverages. A be- okay. I didn't know if Bevs was a specific thing that I was supposed to know. And I was out of the loop. Before before we go any further, at some point, and I don't know if it's going to be right now or if it's going to be way further in the podcast, you're going to recognize what we're talking about, but I have no idea when. Okay. Okay. So John Stythe Pemberton was born on July 8th, 1831 in Knoxville, Georgia, but he grew up in Rome, Georgia. He studied medicine at the Reform Medical College of Georgia in McCann. McCann? Macon. Macon. Yeah. That's why I got a Georgia boy on this one. Um, Is this Coke? Yes. Okay. It's Georgia, so it's like, the Coke is like the biggest thing. He's from Rome? Well, he he wasn't born there, but he did grow up there. I did not uh, know Until that. he went off to college. Yeah, I, I was like... It's going to be really funny if he doesn't realize it until, like, right before I say it. But there's also a very good chance, like, because of how prolific Coke is, he learned this at some point. I mean, I've been through the world of Coke many times. I don't think I learned that he was from Rome or grew up in Rome. Or I don't yeah. remember, at least. But, I mean, if you're going to talk about a drink from Georgia, it's got to be Coke. I can go yeah. get a DC right now. That stands for Diet Cokes, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and non-binary and all of my other people they thems out there yeah good save we're so, we're, uh, we're inclusive here so he he learned uh thompsonian or botanical practices samuel thompson's complete system was repeated steam baths and massive doses of lobelia boneset blue vervain cayenne peppermint or pennyroyal so essentially, this mixture would induce vomiting, and the goal was to purge the body of toxins. If you had a fever, you would be put into a steam bath, and then made to throw up, and then put back in a steam bath, and then made to throw up again. Like, just back and forth until you were quote-unquote well. It was supposed to cure colds, fevers, and help to, quote, restore the, nat- the body's natural heat. This treatment was actually considered an improvement 
to the so-called heroic treatments of bloodletting, intentional raising and popping of boils, and doses of chamomile, whose chief ingredient was mercury. So, I mean, in that case, it is an improvement. I mean, like, the heroic treatment is how George Washington died. They bloodlet him so much that he was exsanguinated. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I need to know more about history. <laughs> You're talking about how they make Coke? Well, yeah, we'll get into that a bit. Like, oh, wait. Okay, for, I was still stuck on... What are we talking about right now? I'm listening... We've been talking about mercury and things that make you vomit and getting stuff out of you. Yeah, so this is how John Pemberton, the guy who created Coke, got into the medicinal field. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So this is what he studied at college. By 1850, he was 19 years old and licensed to practice Thompsonian medicine. And for a brief time, he did practice as a traditional Thompsonian sweat doctor before traveling to Philadelphia, where he took another year of schooling as a pharmacist. He returned to Georgia, where he became a druggist in, you're going to have to correct me on this one, Oglethorpe? Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe, Georgia. This is where he met the love of his life, Anne Eliza Clifford Lewis. Anne her Eliza friends Clifford. called her Cliff. I like that Of name. all the nicknames to give her. <laughs> I like it. Like he could have gone with Anne, or Annie, or Eliza, or Liz... They went with Cliff. I mean, it's way more simple than all those other ones. I guess. They were married in 1853, and the following year had their first, and turns out only child, Charles Nay Pemberton. They loved him, but couldn't bring themselves to discipline him, so he grew up very spoiled. They were gifted two slaves by Cliff's father to help them raise Charles. He would mostly be known as Charlie. In 1855... The family moved to Columbus, Georgia, where Pemberton could continue to expand his business. He was primarily a druggist, but also practiced some medicine like eye surgery. Imagine eye surgery in the middle, in like the mid-1800s. Is it even eye surgery, or did they just like pull it out? What, like, what I assume is... it's mostly, I assume it's mostly just removing the eye. Okay. Also, um, I wonder if people know that the guy who made coke was a slave owner and why isn't that an outrage why is coke still around <laughs> well we'll get into it that's that's far from his only i guess negative quality was he friends with henry ford and walt disney no uh he he didn't last that long uh Pemberton made most of his money selling various proprietary products like Dr. Sanford's Great Invigorator, or Eureka Oil, and the occasional medicinal wine. So you're familiar with the term snake oil salesman, right? Yes. Today, it mostly means like a huckster or a cheat, but its origins come from this time period. It means, it means Herbalife, multi-marketing schemes now. They just kind of <laughs> changed it a little bit. Yeah. The original snake oil was from uh, Chinese immigrants who came to work on the Transcontinental Railroad. They emigrated to the United States, were paid horrific wages, like far less than their white counterparts. But one of the things they did was they brought this ointment from uh, made from Chinese water snakes that they rubbed on their sore muscles, which actually helped with inflammation. Chinese water snakes, Anhydrus chinesis, sorry, chinensis, contains about 20% Icosape pentaonic acid epa 
It's one of the two types of omega-3 fatty acids. And 20% means that Chinese water snakes are actually richer in that fatty acid than salmon, who only have about 18%. This fatty acid does help with inflammation and joint pain. And if it's ingested, it can also help with cognitive function, blood pressure reduction, cholesterol, and depression. The original snake oil actually worked, but get-rich-quick schemers in America found out about it and decided to sell their own snake oil. Obviously, Chinese water snakes don't live in America, so they had to go for something more sensational. The rattlesnake. Yeah, so this was basically like the first form of like Bengay or Icy Hot. The original that the uh, immigrants brought with them, yeah. I guess the first form that we like the United States do about there was probably more in like all other cultures but I I wouldn't say it was like I'm not going to say it's the first first but it's like the first that we have written down in our in our culture I guess yeah uh, I didn't fully go into it but yeah it it seems like this was the first time at least for many Americans that this type of thing existed So these American snake oil salesmen would put on these huge medical shows, including puppetry, live music, acrobatics, black blackface performers, and rattlesnake wranglers who would slaughter a rattlesnake in front of the crowd and then pretend to extract the oil from it to show the freshness. Uh, But rattlesnakes only have about 8.5 EPA, making them far less potent than the water-dwelling snakes, which are fattier. The snake oil salesman would then proclaim that the cure, the oil would cure a litany of diseases from typhoid fever to the measles. And they would essentially sell as much as they could in one sitting and then take off to the next town before anyone realized they had been had. Because it's not real. Just like Herbalife. Yeah. People were desperate for cures. Legitimate medicine was hard to come by or trust. And as we said last week, desperate people tend to be more willing to believe. So a lot of people bought a lot of fake medicine at this point. Pemberton had all kinds of real medicine and snake oils to sell, so he was able to stay in business in Columbus through the 1850s and into the 1860s. In the spring of 1861, he wrote Cliff's mother telling her business was booming, and six-year-old Charlie was, quote, learning fast. You would be surprised to hear him spelling, and I teach him his sabbatical school book every week. He urged her to visit their delightful home and their 20 acres of corn, potato, sugarcane, and watermelons that they had just planted. He continued that the trees and flowers were blooming and the air was fragrant with their sweet perfume. But less than a month later, on April 12, 1861, the South Carolina militia bombarded Fort Sumter and the Civil War began. Civil War. We're We're about to get into Civil War history. We're on wars lately. Very little of it, but it will come up. Pemberton enlisted as a first lieutenant in May of 1862 and organized a home guard for Columbus consisting of the overaged and exempt to protect the city. How old so he was got he? The, at this point, he would have been 30. So basically you're telling me 30. he's just a big old pussy and he didn't want to fight, so he came up with this to guard their homes. I think it was more just because he was a first lieutenant, he could he could do something like this. He wanted to protect the town more than going off to fight, so... Yeah, but he hadn't been in wards or anything like that before, had he? Uh, no. He's not like the guy from The Patriot. I totally forgot what that guy's name is. That I know the actor, but not the... Yeah, Mel Gibson. 
Yep, can't remember the character's name. Yeah, um, but he's not that cool. On April 16th, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered at the Appomattox Courthouse, signaling the official end to the American Civil War. That was quick. So a week later, Pemberton got to fight. After it was done? Yes, a week uh, afterwards. So while defending the bridge into town, Pemberton was shot and slashed with a saber, leaving a massive laceration across his chest and abdomen. Doctors feared he would die, but his money belt had lessened the blow just enough that he was able to pull through with a pretty wicked scar. He recovered, and by November 1865, he was back to promoting his drug business. But the scar wasn't the only thing he brought back from the war. His recovery had left him with a morphine addiction. Okay. Morphine was one of the primary pain relievers used during the Civil War, and being an opiate can be very addictive. 400,000 people developed a morphine addiction as a result of the war. It was so common, it was nicknamed the soldier's disease or army disease. How is morphine, like, even made? Like, could they just go out and get morphine? Like, I know back then you probably don't, like, need prescriptions or anything for it, but was it just, like, wildly available after the Civil War? It was pretty widely available, but he could get it because he's a pharmacist. Yeah. But I'm just um, wondering, like, how many, like, you know, if they were in the war and everything, all the people who went back to, like, farms and their littler cities and places, like, how easy was it for them to continue their addictions? Well, there was nothing like a uh, FDA, really, at the time. Um, there was a Department of Agriculture, like, subdivision, but really there was nobody enforcing anything, which is why so many of these patented snake oils could be sold and everything you didn't really need a prescription for it you could just go buy it from whoever had it okay this was essentially america's first opioid crisis so we've come a long way in uh criminalizing drugs so he traveled to new york and went on a shopping spree returning to georgia with quote the largest and most complete stock of european and american drugs medicines and chemicals For the next five years, he partnered with Dr. Austin Walker, another wealthy local physician, and the business did well. But Pemberton could never save money. Whatever he didn't spend on the business, he freely gave to friends and family, and he also had the morphine addiction. He also started experimenting, creating his own homegrown items, including globe flower cough syrup, allegedly cured bronchitis, asthma, croup, bleeding of the lungs, pleurisy, and laryngitis. He also created extract of... Stilingia allegedly cures ulcers, pustules, carbuncles, scald head, salt room, and 88 different varieties of skin affections. Uh, he also had a blood purifier and sweet southern bouquet, a perfume made from local herbs. Then in 1869, Pemberton abandoned his cozy, well-established Columbus business to strike it rich in Atlanta. At the time, Atlanta was calling itself the Phoenix City after General Sherman had raised it in his famous March to the Sea. As one observer wrote of post-war Atlanta, quote, The sole idea in every man's mind is to make money. Another said, The men rush around like mad and keep up such a bustle, worry and chatter, that it drives me crazy. Everyone looks as if nearly worked to death. And this is where Pemberton brought Cliff and young Charlie to strike their name in the history book. 
He found great success at first. He and his partners established their new business in the luxurious Kimball House. A hotel with six floors, 300 rooms, and elegant features including steam-powered elevators, fountains, tropical plants, elegant furnishings, gold ornaments, and a French chef. Wow. And Pemberton and his partners were able to create the largest drug trade in the city. I don't even know where that is. The Kimball House? Yeah, is that even still around? Or like, I would assume it would be, right? Probably not. I mean, if it came from his history, Coke's a big thing in Atlanta. Yeah, it looks like it's still around, still in operation. I would assume anything connected with him is probably going to be profitable even later on. (laughs) We'll get to to that. Your Coke's big, dude. Yeah, but things are about to get real weird. So Pemberton and his partners were honorable, were quote, honorable and industrious, but lacked good management. And by 1872, Pemberton was bankrupt. In 1874 and 1878, they suffered two fires at the business. The second one, in the second one, $20,000 worth of product was destroyed, and insurance only covered half of it. That's like millions of dollars in today's money. But by 1879, he had paid off his debts and was able to focus on creating new products like Indian Queen Hair Dye, Prescription 4711, Triplex Liver Pills, Gingerine, and eventually Lemon and Orange Elixir. He had various degrees of success for the next few years. He was described by his nephew Lewis Newton as a busy doctor and obsessive secret inventor with, quote, a laboratory in the back in to which but few were given admittance. So he was still trying to find his perfect product but he was also still addicted to morphine. Around 1876, Pemberton came across an article by Sir Richard Christensen, the 78-year-old president of the British Medical Association. He sang the praises of a South American plant called the coca plant, and by chewing on the leaves, he was so invigorated it allowed him to climb Ben Vorlich, a 3,224-foot or 982-meter mountain. He then skipped lunch and walked back down the mountain. Quote, At the bottom, I was neither weary nor hungry nor thirsty and felt I could easily walk home four miles. Yeah, when you're on cocaine, you can do that. Yeah. Uh, and also, like, I wasn't hungry or thirsty or weary. It's like, yeah, dude, you were on cocaine. Pemberton was so intrigued that he read everything he could on this fascinating, quote, new plant. Coca plants were obviously not new. It's one of the oldest cultivated plants in South America. It had been used by the native native people for thousands of years. They chewed on the leaves as a stimulant. Botanists believe it was first cultivated in the Amazon rainforest and then spread to the Andes Mountains. Chewing on the leaves gave an exhilarating sensation and an increase in energy. It was also used in Incan cultural and religious ceremonies. The Catholic Church, believing it undermined the spread of Christianity... In 1551, Catholic bishops urged local leaders to prohibit the use of the plant and restrict the land it could be cultivated on. They didn't outright ban it, but they urged restrictions on it. But European scientists didn't isolate the cocaine from the leaves until 1860. German chemist Albert Nyman isolated the cocaine from the coca plants in 1860 and noted that the powdery white substance made his tongue numb. 
Pemberton wasn't the only one interested in the new drug. A young Viennese doctor named Sigmund Freud also saw the potential of the radical new substance. Freud tried the drug himself in 1884, and it seemed to be the perfect antidote for his occasional bouts with depression and lethargy, as well as increasing his libido. He wrote to his fiancée Martha Bernays, quote, Woe to you, my princess. When I come, I will kiss you quite red. And if you are forward, you shall see who is stronger, a gentle little girl or a big wild man who has cocaine in his body. Man, Just... what a romantic letter to his woman. <laughs> Sounds incredibly sexually menacing. It, it probably was. He probably was, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, later that year, Freud published Uber Coca, where he continued to praise the uses of the new miracle drug. Later that year, an associate of Freud's, Carl Kohler, discovered that cocaine could be used as an anesthetic in eye surgery. It made Kohler famous and revolutionized surgery. This too intrigued Pemberton. Prior to Kohler's discovery, eye surgery like Pemberton had done in his younger days, uh, including, I believe, in Rome, were done without any anesthetic because the prevailing substances at the time, ether and chloroform, both induced vomiting, which can be very dangerous when you have a blade to someone's eyeball. Yeah. This actually did revolutionize surgery, especially eye surgery at at the time. So they would pull out eyes and do things like that without any... I'm just... Old medical stuff in general, like, think about getting, like, like amputated without any anesthetic or any type of surgery back then. They're just cutting into you. Yeah. It makes my butt tingle every time I think about it. It sounds, uh, like, just so horrifying. French chemist Angelo Mariani concocted a tonic made from Bordeaux wine and coca leaves. He called it Vin Mariani, advertising it to restore health and vitality. By the early 1880s, doctors and pharmacists were reporting the use of coca and its primary alkaloid, cocaine, as a possible cure for opium and morphine addiction. (laughs) Obviously, this was very intriguing to Pemberton, and they began to drink Vin Mariani to try to curb his morphine addiction. It's just like, hey, you're going to get another addiction on top of this other addiction. (laughs) Yeah. And he wasn't alone. Mariani was able to, like, he started selling in Europe, but his brother-in-law opened a branch in New York to sell in the United States. Their marketing strategy was to focus on testimonials from a wide variety of famous and important customers, including Thomas Edison, Emile Zola, President William McKinley, Queen Victoria, Sarah Bernhardt, Lillian Russell, Buffalo Bill Cody, and three different popes, including Pope Leo XIII, who gave Mariani a gold medal with Leo's likeness, quote, in recognition of benefits received from the use of Mariani's tonic. So all these people were just coke heads back then. They were just... To an extent, the 1886 blend of Vin Mariani contained 0.12 grain of cocaine per fluid ounce, and the dosage on the wine's label was a claret glassful before or after every meal, or half a glass for children. Even a full glass would be significantly less than just like railing a line of cocaine, but especially at the time, its effects would be very noticeable. You don't have any other type of chemicals or anything in your body... Like we don't have caffeine, we or I guess is there caffeine back then? Like in like our sense, we are about to get to where caffeine comes into play. But 
it was still a very new yeah. product at the time as I, well. I mean, something hitting you for the first time like that, it's going to have effects regardless of like how small the dosage dosage is. Even though, yeah. like it's a really strong drug. Yeah, you you just really didn't need as much at the time because you didn't have like that many stimulants or anything. Yeah. Now our bodies are so used to it, we just gotta we gotta hit four rails of the dust to even get anywhere, you know? Yeah, a little bit of that booger sugar. <laughs> I've no idea anything about cocaine. I've never even seen it. So I'm just making up stuff as I go. <laughs> uh yeah, so while former President Ulysses S. Grant was dying from throat cancer, physicians gave him Vin Mariani to soothe the pain and were credited with prolonging his life long enough for him to finish his memoirs. Vin Mariani's wild success quickly bred a horde of imitators. His was by far the superior concoction to most on the market, because he had access to actual French wine, but that didn't stop others from trying, including Pemberton. In 1885, he introduced his own Pemberton's French Wine Coca. Pemberton not only imitated Mariani's idea for a product, but also his way of advertising. He too touted the beneficial effects on the educated professional class of society. There was a new disease in America at the time that only affected the most refined and mentally active people called neurasthenia, which supposedly affected the central nervous system. Sigmund Freud claimed it caused fatigue, dyspepsia with flatulence, and indications of intracranial pressure and spinal irritation. He believed it was due to, quote, non-complete coitus, or, quote, infrequency of emissions. So blue balls? Pretty much, like, just not enough coming to... to okay. To, and only the, only the most intelligent that happens to. Is that, is uh-huh. that what I'm getting at? Okay. Yeah, well, that's what they claimed. So if Only you, the most mentally if, taxed. If you can come really well, you are not mentally taxing yourself enough. <laughs> so, so Pemberton claimed his French wine coca could cure that and a litany of other problems. Quote from one of his ads... Scientists, scholars, poets, divines, lawyers, physicians, and others devoted to extreme mental exertion are the most liberal patrons of this great invigorator of the brain. Mariani and Co. of Paris prepare an exceedingly popular wine of the coca. I have observed very closely the most approved French formula, only deviating therefrom when assured by my own long experimentation and direct information from intelligent South American correspondence that I could improve upon it. I believe I am now producing a better preparation than that of Mariani. When's the accent start? That sounded exactly like you, regardless. Uh, Fuck off. <laughs> that's just your act. That's just how you sound. That is not like, how it Like an old colonel. <laughs> well, that was the goal. Uh, he advertised that the wine contained coca plants from Peru, African cola nuts, true Damiana, and pure grape wine. The African cola nuts contained caffeine, which were also considered an aphrodisiac. So combining it with coca leaves made it a pretty powerful uh, stimulant, while Damiana, probably saying that wrong, was believed to be, quote, the most powerful invigorant ever produced. 
So he advertised it aggressively as a cure for nervous disorders, impotency, and dyspepsia. In 1885, he ran an ad. Here's an abridged version. Americans are the most nervous people in the world. All who are suffering from any nervous complaints we commend to use the wonderful and delightful remedy, French wine coca. Infallible in curing all who are afflicted of any nervous trouble, dyspepsia, mental and physical exhaustion, all chronic and wasting diseases, gastric irritability, constipation, sick headache, neuralgia, etc. It is quickly cured by the coca wine. A sure restorer of health and happiness, coca is the most wonderful invigorator of the sexual organs and will cure seminal weakness, impotency, etc. when all other remedies fail. To the unfortunate who are addicted to the morphine or opium habit or the excessive use of alcohol stimulants, the French wine coca has proven a great blessing and thousands proclaim it is the most remarkable invigorator that has ever sustained a wasting and sinking system. Using wine and cocaine to cure opioid addiction or alcoholism is quite the claim. There really was no no rules back then. You just lie all you want. <laughs> Fucking Wild West, baby. Yeah, I, I was listening to that I was like, where is your controlled studies? I, I want to see your scientific uh, work from this. Yeah, like all the regular people were just like, well, fuck, he's a pharmacist. He must know what he's talking about, I guess. Not that he's, he's a liar and wants to make money. Oh, no, surely not. So while many, including Pemberton, were claiming cocaine was a miracle cure, others were already warning of its dangerous potential. While it might help edge people off an addiction like morphine or opium, it could easily cause a new addiction to cocaine. But Pemberton wouldn't hear a word of it. He himself likely tried to cure his morphine addiction only to be ensnared by cocaine, and being an inventor and pharmacist, he had ready access to both. French wine coca flew off the shelves, and Pemberton's fortune was just starting to take off. But so was the temperance movement led by Reverend Sam Jones. He was a reformed alcoholic and for years had led the fight uh, for prohibition, calling drinkers red-nosed whiskey devils, flop-eared hounds, and whiskey soaks. By a slim margin, his, charism his charismatic ravings had won over just enough people to vote on November 25th, 1885 to make Atlanta and Fulton County vote to become dry for an experimental period of two years. The ban on, li on liquor wouldn't go into effect until July 1st, 1886, so saloon keepers could sell off their inventory. But Pemberton saw that the days of wine-based medicine were most likely numbered, so he went back to his laboratory to modify his drink. He removed the wine and added a shit ton of sugar and citric acid, but was still tinkering with it when two Yankee businessmen from Maine appeared at his door. Frank Robinson and David Doe were trying to sell a chromatic printing device capable of producing two colors at one impression. It was impressive, and Pemberton and his own partner, Ed Holland, met with the two men to create Pemberton Chemical Company. But Atlanta publishers simply weren't interested in buying the product. Pemberton continued to tinker with his temperance drink. He would test out trial runs at Venable's Soda Fountain at Jacob's Pharmacy. The soda fountain would add carbonated water to his syrup concoction as Pemberton's lab did not have the means to carbonate it. After much trial and error, Pemberton was finally satisfied with his new beverage, but he'd only been calling it, quote, my temperance drink without an actual name. 
Other products at the time, especially in Atlanta, mostly all had one thing in common. There was Botanic Blood Balm, Copeland's Cholera Cure, Goff's Giant Globules, Dr. Jordan's Joyous Julep, Dr. Pierce's Pleasant Purgative Pellets, Radway's Ready Relief, Swift's Sure Specific, and many more. Were they all using these beverages for like... Uh like medical purposes that's like their selling suit none of them were doing it for like recreational use of like you know it's just a fun to drink it was a combination of both some of them were just drinks for enjoying the drink some of them were touted as medicinal like i mean if if you've got a good tasting drink and can get away with people believing it'll cure something you might as well throw that in the advertising I can say naming of beverages have gotten much better over the years. I mean, I do like the alliteration, but some of these get pretty obnoxious. Also, botanic blood bomb just does not sound very appealing. Hey, go go grab me a botanic blood bomb out of the or whatever you said out of out of the fridge. <laughs> well, from what I can tell, uh, these weren't all drinks. I think the blood bomb is actually a bomb for skin and blood diseases, like. Uh, you're supposed to rub it on you. I think Copeland's Cholera Cure was a drink, but I couldn't find any information on most of these. As far as I can tell, Goff's Giant Globules was just, like, some kind of sugar pill or something. Dr. Pierce's Pleasant Purgative Pellets was, I think, to cure farts and headaches? Kind of all over the place. So Pemberton sat down with Holland, Robinson, and Doe to brainstorm. Frank Robinson finally came up with the winning name after, uh by just naming it after its two main ingredients, coca and cola. The K of cola nuts was turned into a C for the flashy, proper alliteration, and thus Coca-Cola was born. Coca-Cola was sold both as a medicinal drink, as well as a delicious beverage, and it sold moderately well at first. What was it? Pemberton, what did they say that was the medicinal purpose of Coca-Cola at the beginning? I think we're going to get into that okay. in just a little bit. So Pemberton handed over manufacturing duties to Robinson while he himself took a break, probably to shoot up morphine. The first Coca-Cola ad premiered in Atlanta in the Atlanta Journal on May 29, 1886 and featured block letters. It wasn't until the following year, on June 16, 1887, that the Spencerian script we're all familiar with today, like the font that they use now, mm-hmm. uh, so that wasn't introduced until 1887. Robinson also had coupons made, which could be redeemed for one free glass of Coca-Cola. Using the Atlanta City Directory, he mailed them to prospective customers. He also gave them the traveling businessmen, knowing that if they tasted it, they'd be sure to tell people on their travels, ensuring more future clients. He was doing it at a, at a loss, but he believed that like as soon as people tasted this, they'd all come willing to buy you gotta spread the word it's pretty good marketing honestly yeah and the original glass of coke was sold for five cents a glass local prohibition finally took hold in atlanta becoming the first major city to be declared a no liquor location the front page of the constitution newspaper declared atlanta dry the first of july marks a new era But that newspaper also sold an ad for Duffy's Pure Malt Whiskey for medicinal uses. 
absolutely pure and unadulterated, in use in hospitals, curative institutions, infirmaries, cures consumption, hemorrhages, and wasting diseases. The Kimball House's liquor license didn't run out until October 9th. But after everywhere else was shut down, so many people flocked there, and the crowds became so rowdy that the Kimball House forbade drinking on the premise. So people had to take their liquor to go. (laughs) Drink and drive. Drinking carriage ride. Drinking horse. Yeah. So, the actual dryness of the community was pretty questionable. Nevertheless, non-alcoholic Coca-Cola was doing pretty well. And Pemberton felt emboldened, so he started advertising his French wine Coca again, because there really just wasn't that much enforcement of the temperance. He declared it a temperance drink that increased longevity. Quote, Instances of... Instances are recorded of persons who have lived over 120, 130, 140, or even over 150 years. How would he know that? Yeah. (laughs) Why would anybody believe that? He had only put this on the market a year earlier. And he's like, oh, because they're drinking this, they're living 150 years. (laughs) Okay. So he actually believed he could get away with selling wine coca during temperance. Turns out he was right. Sales were booming long before the two-year trial period of temperance was over when it was resoundly voted out November 26, 1887. Yeah, everybody, seven... we, we're going to have to talk about Prohibition one time on here. Prohibition's oh, a wild time, and I have no idea how it actually ever got through. That one's actually got some uh, local Kansas history to it, and that story also gets pretty weird. So yeah, we'll we'll definitely do it at some point. And don't, prohibition also led to like mafia times and like crazy. Uh, what what are they called? I get the guys who run like alcohol bootleggers, bootleggers, things like that. There's so much to talk about. I, I, we it, it just that was a wild time uh, in yep. U.S. history. Yeah, we'll Ooh. we'll get to that at some point. Question: uh, I just I off the top of my head because I'm thinking about it. Has any other country ever had a prohibition? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. It prohibitions popped up quite a quite often in quite a few places. Uh, Alcohol has just been around for so long. Like it, yeah, it's been everywhere. For trying to do an episode on just like the history of alcohol would be like even worse than trying to do it on clowns. Like it's so ingrained in society for so long at a 720 bottles sold per day. French wine Coca was resoundly outpacing Coca-Cola, but Coca-Cola was still on the rise selling 600 gallons in its first year. Coca-Cola claims that they only sold 25 to 30 gallons per year. Like the company, But they claim a lot of things about their history that aren't true. How do you Uh, know they aren't true? They're the ones who have it really written down in their record books. Just like the Coke recipe. It's in like a hidden vault that only like two people know or something. We'll get into that on uh, the next episode because this (laughs) is going to be a two-parter. At least. For one reason or another, Robinson claimed that they only sold... 25 to 30 gallons per year which is the number coca-cola company claims in their company lore but 600 gallons is the actual number do you think what i could find do you think it had to do like there were taxes and stuff back then weren't there 
Yeah, uh, it might have had something to do with that. Um, or it might have been he just misremembered uh, or uh, was talking about like a different. Like, he was definitely dodging something with with that, I bet. They all were. Yeah. Um, each gallon of syrup was enough to make 128 drinks, making about 76,800 drinks sold in the first year. That is that is wildly good. That's good for now, like within yeah. like the start. But also, Coca-Cola was only five cents per drink, whereas the French wine cocoa was selling 720 bottles per day, and I believe was sold for more. So he was getting rich quick. Well, depending kind on, of. I guess, I wonder how much distribu- distribution and like bottling and stuff cost him. 1887 also saw a change in partnership. David Doe exited the company taking the printing machine with him, but in his place, the company gained M.P. Alexander and Woolfolk Walker, who had served in Pemberton's cavalry. Pemberton's only child, Charlie, also joined the company, now a 33-year-old womanizing alcoholic. Charlie learned to make Coca-Cola, allowing Robinson to shift all of his focus towards advertisement. On June 6, 1887, Pemberton applied for a Coca-Cola trademark patent as sole proprietor. Wow. And this is, and this is where things dirty. go off the rails. That is dirty of him. Yeah. So on July 8th, Pemberton sold two-thirds of the rights to Willis Venable, the soda fountain king of Atlanta, and George Lowndes, who Pemberton had been friends with since sharing a boarding room in 1869. He sold those two-thirds for $1. He was also given $1,200 as a no-interest loan to be paid back from future profits. Bro, he saw his business plan and was just like, I'm screwing these guys over, I want it all, I'm gonna go to these two guys that I know. Well... He's an addict. Dude, that is wild. And, like, I'm I'm not, like, I'm not trying to besmirch addicts, but being addicted to a substance does cause kind of erratic behavior, and also being on those substances can cause pretty erratic behavior, so. Well, you also see stuff like this in big, like, starting to boom businesses all the time regardless because like greed jumps in so hard like we've seen it with so much of our so many of like the new tech companies and stuff coming along it's inevitable that somebody's going to try to screw over somebody else like you have to be so tight-knit not to do that technically he made 1201 dollars off the sale but only one dollar was for the company the other twelve thousand was a loan uh he also sold venable and lounge all the necessary equipment and supplies at cost so less than 300 dollars, as well as a copy of the cocaine formula sorry coca-cola formula <laughs> no the cocaine formula yeah he believed that coca-cola would be a national beverage if only he had the capital to advertise it but his health was also failing and his addictions were clearly getting worse MP Alexander caught a hint of things that things were going sideways and pulled out of the par- the partnership uh, with Pemberton making the trademark in his name only Alexander decided to cut his losses take what was left of his initial invents- investment and depart for Tennessee and eventually Texas for whatever reason he didn't warn anybody else about this 
So Pemberton informed Robinson on July 21st that he had obtained the patent in his name alone and had sold two-thirds of the company. <laughs> Robinson, who had named the drink, created the logo, logo, done most of the work manufacturing and advertising it, was essentially left holding an empty bag. I would have been so mad. Yeah. That, dude, that, there had to be some grievances within, like, the business partnery right there. Especially if the one guy just left without telling the other guy. They probably all hated each other. I'm honestly surprised this story didn't involve more murder. <laughs> like, I would have, dude. A, I would have. I guess it's suing and doing things like that back then wasn't as prevalent but I, if i was that guy i, I would have done something there's no way well robinson then convinced ed holland to accompany him to consult a lawyer named john candler to see if they had a case against pemberton john candler was 26 years old and a promising prosecutor he agreed to pay a visit to pemberton to try to ascertain the situation pemberton was bedridden at this point he denied any wrongdoing Quote, they are mistaken. They have got no interest in Coca-Cola whatever. I have done as they say, but I never did give them any rights to it, nor their company. It doesn't make any difference, though. Even if they did have any rights, I don't know how you would get anything out of me. So John Candler decided not to take the case, and Robinson sadly agreed. He and Holland didn't have the money to pursue it, and even if they did, Pemberton doesn't have any money that they could get off him anyways. Yeah, and there's no reason to kill him. He's already dying. Yeah. Man, he, he like, screwed them over at the perfect time. Yeah, so Lowndes and Venable had their own problems. Venable was too busy being the soda fountain king to actually make or market the drink and eventually sold to Lowndes. Lowndes couldn't figure out how to successfully market it either and was also looking to sell. So Lowndes sold to Wolf Walker and his younger sister, Margaret Dozer making the ownership even more fractured as Pemberton still owned one-third, Walker owned four-ninths, and his sister Margaret owned two-ninths. What? <laughs> it's just splitting it up even more for wild reasons. Then Venable sold his shares to Joseph Jacobs. Am I supposed to know who that is? No, but Venable had already sold his share to Lowndes. Oh, so he sold it again? <laughs> yeah! What the f- What's going on? So, Jacobs kept his share for well over a year, but quickly became annoyed because by both the drink and its creator, as Pemberton, now revived from his bedridden state, kept hitting him up for money. According to Jacobs, there was a clause in the original agreement in which Pemberton was to receive five cents per gallon sold. And Pemberton begged for advancements on that money all the time. Pemberton worked out this plan perfectly. He is like a s- scam artist. No, he's he's just a drug addict who spent all his money and he's like, I need more money. And he's scamming them. Yeah. That's, that's Pemberton wild. was on the verge of bankruptcy again and placed an interesting ad in the Atlanta Constitution. Quote, wanted. <laughs> okay. Wanted. An acceptable party with $2,000 to purchase one-half interest in a very profitable and well-established manufacturing business. Absolutely no risk and a guaranteed a 50% profit on investment with possibility of a much larger profits and rare opportunities to write party. He gave a false address and three investors, J.C. Mayfield, A.O. Murphy, 
and E.H. Bloodworth took the bait, all paying $2,000 for a 50% share of the company that Pemberton only had one-third of. So, so to sum it up, Dude. The, the people claiming ownership of Coca-Cola are John Pemberton, Wolf Oak Walker, Margaret Dozier, Charlie Pemberton, Joseph Jacobs, Frank Robinson, J.C. Mayfield, A.O. Murphy, and E.H. Bloodworth. So, with how it's split up now, is Pemberton back to majority owner? No, he still only has one-third, and he just sold 50% of that one-third to three different people. But he didn't. Did he? No. (laughs) It's just... I mean, so, if, to be honest, if it would have been real, it's a good investment. But, like, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, like, he, he sold it, but he doesn't have the right to sell it, so. Well, he also lied to them, and uh, he couldn't sell it. <laughs> Why is he still there? What are they, what's, <laughs> what's his other business partners letting him be there for? He's a fucking lunatic. But he he did technically, like, create the original formula, so, like, there is that part of the claim, and he had sole propriety of the initial trademark. So, besides creating the formula, the dude did nothing else besides scam, do drugs, and make messes of everything. Pretty much. So the, uh, the giant that it became had nothing to do with him, to be honest. Except for that initial formula, yeah. yeah. That's, okay. So, there was one other person claiming ownership. Frank Robinson had moved on from the attorney John Candler to his older brother Asa Griggs Candler. Hoping to either recoup his investment or simply get revenge... Robinson had turned to Asa Candler, an ambitious Atlanta druggist and inventor. Discreetly, Candler began buying up the fractured portions of Coca-Cola ownership. He started with Joseph Jacobs, who had complained. Joseph Jacobs was a friend of Asa Candler and had been complaining about Pemberton's constant harassment about money. And Candler casually offered to take the trouble off Jacobs' hands in exchange for stock in an uninsured glass factory. Jacob agreed. A week later, the glass factory burned to the ground. <laughs> Why would you get stock in an uninsured glass factory? Dude, I, I hope this. I hope I, I'm rooting for this Robinson guy. I want him. I hope he's the one who made Coke Coke. So Pemberton and the and the three investors began working on the Pemberton Medicine Company, including all of his patented products. Mayfield ran the laboratory, Bloodworth worked as a traveling salesman, and Murphy kept the books. Charlie Pemberton returned, demanding Mayfield give him the manufacturing job, and Mayfield refused. Charlie began throwing tantrums, boozing, and wheedling. Is Mayfield like Mayfield milk? No, I don't. Okay. I don't think so. I was about to be like, this goes deep. (laughs) (laughs) Charlie began throwing tantrums, boozing, and wheedling, uh, so they needed to do something about him. Pemberton finally told the partners he had signed the rights to Coca-Cola over to Charlie some time ago, but hadn't remembered till now because he was addicted to morphine. (laughs) They were just putting up with Pemberton for no reason. Just, this this would be so infuriating. And Charlie's probably like, 
I have the rights. I'm part of this. And his dad screwed him over. And they're all like, dude, you're just a crazy dude trying to come in here and tell us what to do. Pemberton screwed over everybody. That's funny. Uh, But Candler was moving forward uninhibited. He had partnered with Charlie Pemberton, Wolf Walker, and Margaret Dozier, and they were manufacturing Coca-Cola faster than Pemberton and selling it harder. On March 24th, 1888, they filed to incorporate uh, they filed incorporation for the Coca-Cola Company in Fulton County Superior Court. On April 14th, 1888, Candler bought out Charlie Pemberton for $550. 3 days later on April 17th, Candler bought half of the Walker Dozier claim. And John Pemberton was dying of stomach cancer, but continued to work in his laboratory trying to make Coca-Cola under different names like Yum Yum and Coke, K-O-K-E, as well as a modified cola with celery extract. Why? So the guy who... Why is he doing that? Because he needs to make money. Okay. <laughs> so, so the guy who made the original Coca-Cola is now trying to make an imitator because he can't use Coca-Cola, but like he's trying to make imita- imitators like Yum Yum and Coke. I, I I honestly feel so bad for him, but at the same time, it's just like, I, I have no idea what, to, that is wild. Like, you make the real Coke, and then because you're so bad and so drugged up that you have to go to imitation to make the same thing that you've already been making for years, and you're dying. Just die. Yeah. Just, like, let yourself go. Well, none of these imitators took off, and John Pemberton died August 16, 1888, at the age of 57. The newspaper called him, quote, the oldest druggist in Atlanta and one of her best-known citizens, an especially po- popular gentleman. The paper continued, Mr. Candler paid Dr. Pemberton a beautiful tribute of respect, speaking of his lovable nature and many virtues. He voiced, he said, the feelings of all present that our profession has lost a good and active member. Asa Candler served as pallbearer for Pemberton's funeral. Two weeks later, on August 30th, 1888, Candler bought Walker and Dozer's remaining stake for $1,000. In total, he paid about $2,300 for the entire legal claim of Coca-Cola, and by May 1st, 1889, he proclaimed he was sole proprietor. Charlie ended up dying of an opium overdose six, six years later in 1894 at the age of 40. So was Coke not making any money at that time? Why did they only why was it only a thousand dollars? It was making some money, but not not like a whole lot. And essentially Candler was pretty charismatic and also probably pretty ruthless and he was he probably went to Walker and Dozer and was like, Look, I'll give you a thousand dollars now and then you won't have to deal with any more of this bullshit. And then <laughs> like Yeah. Get me out of here. <laughs> is Candler the lawyer for the Dave Robinson guy? Or what happened? Asa Candler is John Candler's brother. John Candler was the lawyer. Oh, oh, so, okay. He, so, but, but he, is he doing this on behalf of the Dave guy? Or does Dave, or does the Robinson guy not care? Uh, Frank Robinson. Frank, that's it. Yeah, wanted, wanted his help. And so Asa Candler had the money to actually pull it off. So did Candler 
screw Robinson in the end after he bonded up all of his self? Or are you about to get to that? We're going to cover that next week on what Asa Candler did with the company. Um, okay. But so I'm just wondering if Robinson just got double screwed. <laughs> just Well, Robinson worked with Asa Candler on the on the new product, but he didn't have any rights to the actual company. So okay. he was just an employee. Well, he's got, I hope he gets some rights or something. Yeah. He, he never, uh, did he ever, he, I'm assuming he never got to put it in Pimbleton's face that he uh, was part of the reason that it all got bought up. Probably not. Dang. Uh, I think Pemberton died before. Pemberton. Why can I? Why I keep messing up his name? In 1893, pharmacist Caleb Bradham created Brad's Drink, a cola that would eventually become Coca-Cola's biggest rival, Pepsi. Begun the cola wars have. Next week, we're going to get into how Coca-Cola really took off, and and how Pepsi eventually became a force that could actually stand yeah. up to him. Coke had to help with its like advertising and everything. You kept bringing that up, and I'm assuming once they actually get advertising or a real person who knows what they're doing with that, that's why they blow up. I mean, if you think about Coke in general, you think about their advertisements throughout the years, at least I do. Like, yeah, uh, and, and we're going to get into all that next week with with how they started using Santa Claus, some racism, some more wars. Next week's episode, like, I'm not even sure if this is going to be a two or a three-parter because, God, there's a lot more to cover and it's just, it gets so fucking weird. It's awesome. I'm excited. This is fun. In George Beard's book, American Nervousness, Its Causes and Consequences, he said about Coca-Cola, quote, Coca-Cola emerged from this turbulent, inventive, noisy, neurotic new America. It began as a nerve tonic while many others marketed to capitalize on the dislocations and worries of the day. After surviving an early history rife with conflict and controversy, this lowly nickel soft drink became so much part of national life that by 1938 it was called the sublimated essence of America. That's a, that's a, trying to use a, a bigger word for that, but that's like a... It's a hell of a quote. Yeah, that that is basically that's just a massive way, like a massive compliment or like massive. You know what I'm saying? It is a hell of a quote, but that's like a like a wild thing to say about something like to have that big of an impact. Yeah, and and next week we're gonna get into just how Coca Cola went from just like a soda fountain curiosity to the most recognized brand in the world. Yeah, because they get into, I guess they're already into the Olympics and stuff at that point in 38. Because they're like one of the biggest Olympic sponsors. and No, um, private advertising in the Olympics wouldn't start until the 1984 Olympics. 84. Okay, and I um, guess that's when they, like when Coke, like, I mean they're very big into that. Yeah, they, they had to blind bid against Pepsi and they won by... I think bidding $12 million to advertise. I mean, it worth the money worth the money, but yeah, that's, that's the, uh, neurotic history of the early, early days of Coke. Good things, things come are, from drug addicts. 
Yeah, things are gonna get pretty fucking wild on the next episode. Oh, I, I originally I was gonna write this all the way to uh, to the end of Candler's run as head of the company, but that's a lot. Yeah, this was already like the longest episode I've written, which somehow didn't take that much time to actually record. Yeah, did we but, mess uh, up? I felt like we talked a lot too. I thought this was a great episode. I enjoyed the whole thing. I was smiling. I was happy. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a world of Coke bottle behind Uh, me. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. We're just kind of rambling at this point, so we should go ahead and wrap up. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at King Hagathor. You can follow us on Twitter at what underscore we underscore consume and on Instagram at what we consume. And before you go, please... Go to our Twitter. Comment. What is your favorite soft drink? Is it Coke? Is it Pepsi? Is it the Dr. Pepper? Is it the Sun Kiss? Is it anything that we know? (laughs) Yeah. So that's going to do it for us today. Bye-bye.